So this morning I'm going to be bringing a, a message from the book of Philippians. Actually, so if you want to turn there now, Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. I, uh, I don't get a chance to preach very often, so it's always a blessing when I get to. And I was trying to come up with a sermon title for this morning, and I know that the, the, the title really doesn't matter, but since I don't get to do it very often, I want it to be good. And uh, trying to be original, I thought maybe I'll title it Saying the Same Things. I thought that would be kind of cool because it's kind of what Paul says at the beginning of this passage. And that's kind of what I feel like I do every time I preach. I'm just saying the same thing I said last time in a different way from a different passage, you know, preaching the gospel. That's what, that's what we do every Sunday, hopefully, is proclaiming the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, of who he is, of what he's done. And so I thought maybe that'd be cool, but I couldn't get away from the fact that the, the, the theme of this whole book and, and this passage in particular is, is focused in on the theme of rejoicing in loss. So although it's not original, it is appropriate, as we'll see. Uh, so before we jump in and read it, uh, or actually, let's go ahead and read that passage now, and then I'll pray. Philippians 3, starting in verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Lord, thank you for your precious word, for the incarnate Son of God who has gloriously made your grace and mercy known to us through his life, death, and resurrection. Your word is powerful and effective for all that you intend it to accomplish pray that you would give me the grace this morning to proclaim your word in humility and power, that I would not be ashamed, but that I would be bold. I pray for the ears of those in the room or listening online that you would cause them to hear your words, not mine, 
that your spirit would cause them to reject any potential error and embrace only the truth as it accords with your word. We love you, Lord. We pray these things through the name of our prophet, priest, and king, Jesus. Amen. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Paul has already told the Philippians three times before this to rejoice. And now he says it again for the fourth time. Although it sounds like he might be bringing this letter to a close when he says finally, he actually goes on for, for a whole other chapter. And in chapter 4, verse 4, he says again, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. The Westminster Catechism begins with a question, what is the chief end of man? And the answer, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. We can really reword this to say that the ultimate purpose of our life is to enjoy God, to glorify God, and to rejoice in him forever. If we're getting everything else right in terms of obedience and faith, but we're not enjoying God, we're really missing the point of it all. The gospel is good news. It is truth so good that it makes any other news or any other circumstances insignificant by comparison. Or to use Paul's language, garbage by comparison. Paul goes on in verse 1 and says, To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. There's some debate as to whether the same things that he's referring to are things that he said just prior to this or previously in the letter or in other letters or maybe things that he's even said to them when he was with them in person. But regardless, he's making the point that what he has said before is worth repeating. He says it's not troublesome or bothersome for him to repeat these things. He's not ashamed to repeat the same things. And he says it is safe for you, meaning that the things being said are for their good, for their safeguarding, to help protect them. When I taught on the discipline of memorization a few weeks ago at one of our midweek lessons on the spiritual disciplines, I pointed out how valuable the practice of repetition is, not only for learning new scripture verses, but to really meditate on those scriptures and come to know them, to really know the meaning of those verses and for the ability to recall those things when we need them. Paul wants the Philippians and us by extension, to know the truths of the gospel, to know the joy of knowing Christ. In reminding them to rejoice in the Lord, Paul is wanting them to stay oriented to the good news of the gospel. The gospel is why we rejoice in the Lord. It is that good news that compels us to rejoice. It's the good news that has filled our hearts with joy. If I'm not rejoicing, I can't just make myself rejoice by 
telling myself to rejoice. I must have a reason to rejoice for the in the sake of the, in the situation for the Christian. That simply means I need to be reminded of my reason to rejoice. Before he expounds on the gospel, he unashamedly repeats the warning he's given in other letters and almost certainly in person. In verse two, he says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. When Paul says look out, he's talking about being actively on guard. Like a watchdog against those who teach a false gospel. He wants them to be discerning of false teaching so that they will not fall prey to its deceptive lies. What does this have to do with rejoicing in the Lord? If we're going to remain joyful in the Lord, which is done only through the power of the gospel, through the truth of the gospel message as it works in our lives, we have to see that anything that undermines that truth will also undermine our joy. Paul had already seen the Galatian church believe the gospel message of grace and begin to experience the joy of salvation through faith alone in Christ alone only to turn their ears back to these false teachers who had crept in and were telling them that they needed to add to that by being circumcised and by following Jewish tradition. He was gravely concerned about what this meant for them. He said in Galatians 4, 9 through 11, he wrote to them and said, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Paul wants the Philippian church to avoid this. He wants the Galatian church to be a warning for them so that they can avoid this kind of destructive heresy. He wants them to be watchful for it so that they're ready to act swiftly. His warning, he's warning them that they are out there, that they and their false gospel are dangerous. Notice, too, that he doesn't write this specifically to just the elders. It is the job of the elders. It's the role of the elders to protect the flock to shepherd the flock and watch out for these things coming into the church. But the elders cannot be with the church every day of the week. The church is also responsible. The individual members of the church have to be on guard against these things. There are numerous ways for false teaching to creep into our daily lives, whether it's through watching TV or listening to the radio or even reading a book. Satan is a master deceiver. His most effective tool against Christians is not to just come straight on at the truth and challenge it with a blatant lie. It's to take the truth and twist it just enough that what's being said sounds like something God would say rather than something that Satan would say. There's nothing new under the sun. The same heresy that was being peddled in Paul's day is the same 
false message being peddled today. It might come in a different package, but the message is still the same. You are not saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You have to add something to that. There's something more that you need to do. Our ears should perk up with the same zealousness as Paul when we hear someone proclaiming a gospel that adds in any way to the free grace of God and our salvation. That is a far more dangerous threat to the church than any other kind of sin. As Christians who have been saved by the truth of the gospel message that we were given, we have a responsibility to guard that message, not only for our sake, but for the sake of our neighbor as well. 2 Timothy 1, 13 to 14, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Paul followed up the phrase, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you, with a warning against those who want to corrupt the truth of the gospel. He issues this warning with one sentence, and then he springs into a fresh proclamation of the gospel. And that's always Paul's answer for everything, a right understanding of the gospel and how it applies to this situation. The best way to spot a counterfeit is to know what the re real thing looks like. You know, you've heard it before, I'm sure, that when they're teaching people in banks and, and whatever to, to recognize a counterfeit bill, they don't show them a bunch of counterfeit bills and say, see what they look like. They just show them what the real thing looks like. And if anything is out of whack with, 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 with something, it's, and then it's a counterfeit. It doesn't, you know, having one little imperfection in a $20 bill doesn't make it worth only $19. It's completely worthless. It's the same thing with a gospel that is 95% correct. A false gospel is still a deadly, dangerous gospel. It's no gospel at all. So after his warning to look out for the counterfeits, he says in verse 3, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. He takes a positive approach here and affirms his relationship to them and identifies himself with them as part of the circumcision that matters, the circumcision of the heart. It is those who worship by the Spirit of God who are the true circumcision. They recognize that their membership in the family of God is not by something that they've done, not by birthright, but by something that God has done for them on their behalf. Romans 2, 28, 29, Paul said, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Circumcision is a matter of the heart. It is a work of the Spirit which produces genuine worship. It is the act of marking us as his children by removing our heart of stone and giving us a heart of flesh. A hard heart that stubbornly refuses to see the beauty of Christ. 
is replaced with a soft heart that sees him in all of his glory and cannot help but worship him. He says, and we glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. We glory, we shine, we radiate the goodness of God through our union with Christ and all that he has accomplished. The good works that are seen in us are a result of our being one with Christ. His righteousness is what fuels our obedience. We put no confidence in the flesh. We do not regard our good deeds as anything that has improved our own standing before God. We know that we are incapable of doing anything good apart from Christ. We put no confidence in our own abilities or accomplishments. But just in case some of these Judaizers tried to claim that Paul was just envious of them or that he really had no basis for confidence in the flesh, he says in verse 4, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrew, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He says, I put no confidence in the flesh, but I have reason for confidence in the flesh also. He's certainly not saying, I'm in an even better position than I would be otherwise, because I can also add to my faith these things that I've done in the flesh if I need to. It's not like he's hedging his bet and saying, I'm covered both ways. If my faith doesn't hold out or quite get the job done, I can always tack on my good works. No, he is saying that these men who are putting their confidence in the flesh have nothing to hold up against Paul. And then he lists his pedigree as a Jew of Jews. His obedience to the law started when he was eight days old. That was the age that a male was to be circumcised. If you were circumcised the day before, the day after, you missed it. That was an imperfect violation of God's commandment. He was a natural Jew of the people of Israel, able to trace his lineage all the way back to Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. And of course, we know that this was done in sinful ignorance, but he was so zealous for the Jewish faith that he actively went after anything that threatened it. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. He makes the case that if anyone can be justified by flesh, by works, it's him. But then he says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Whatever gain he had, the gain he's referring to were the benefits that he had once put confidence in. He's saying all those things that once gave me a sense of pride, a sense of purpose, a sense of confidence that made me feel worthy. I counted all as loss for the sake of Christ. 
Paul is articulating the nature of true repentance here. When Christ graciously opened his eyes to the gospel, he experienced a profound change in values. Everything that was a part of his life apart from Christ, everything, even the things that in and of themselves we would consider to be good things, were now seen as worthless. Nothing but idols that he had foolishly worshipped. Because of Christ, he can no longer look at those former things with the pleasure that he once did. He sees no advantage to his lifetime of human accomplishments. He sees them as a loss, a waste, a shameful thing to be rejected because they were all done without the knowledge of Christ. John Gill in his commentary on this verse says that it's the same sense in which a drunken man is later told of his behavior while he was intoxicated and now is ashamed and has no pleasure in thinking about it. This repentance, this new perspective, this new way of thinking, not only affects the way that he views the past, but also the way he views the present and the future. He says in verse 8, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I now count everything as loss. Nothing compares to the supremacy of knowing Christ. There is an affection and devotion to knowing Christ that makes everything else by comparison worthless. Paul is saying, in effect, I'm the man that Jesus talked about when he said, that there was a man who had found hidden treasure in a field. And in his joy, that man went and sold everything in order to buy that field. He's so in love with Jesus that there is nothing else he would rather have. Nothing that he wouldn't give up. Everything that he's accumulated for himself, everything he once held dear, doesn't just pale in comparison. It doesn't compare at all. There is no value in any temporary created thing apart from how that created thing points to a greater knowledge of Christ. See that he's not simply referring to a cognitive knowledge. He's talking about an experiential, intimate knowledge. We'll see that more clearly in verse 10 when he says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings. But before we go there, let's look at the rest of verse 8. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ. Those first three words are critical for the Christian experience of suffering. For his sake. Years ago, years ago, the first time that I read the book Desiring God uh, by John Piper, I was profoundly impacted by what he said in regard to suffering with and suffering for Christ. Here's what he said. All experiences of suffering in the path of Christian obedience, whether from persecution or sickness or accident, have this in common. 
They all threaten our faith in the goodness of God and tempt us to leave the path of obedience. Therefore, every triumph of faith and all perseverance in obedience are testimonies to the goodness of God and the preciousness of Christ. Whether the enemy is sickness, Satan, sin, or sabotage, Therefore, all suffering of every kind that we endure in the path of our Christian calling is a suffering with Christ and for Christ. With him in the sense that the suffering comes to us as we are walking with him by faith. And in the sense that it is endured in the strength he supplies through his sympathizing high priestly ministry to us. And for him in the sense that the suffering tests and proves our allegiance to his goodness and power, and in the sense that it reveals his worth as an all-sufficient compensation and prize. This really became applicable for me in the way that I tried to implement this in my daily life. I, I'm, a, I'm a mechanic by trade, and so my, my day is often filled with thorns and thistles, and it's not uncommon for me to bust a knuckle or hit my finger with a hammer or something like that that would typically cause a reaction I'm sure you all are familiar with. But as silly as it seems, this really struck home for me, and I began to see my sore finger as an opportunity for me to recognize that by faith, I'm able not to yell out and say something that I'll regret if anybody was listening, but that I can really recognize I can suffer for Christ by watching how I respond to even the silly little things like that, to check my attitude, to check my heart. It's been incredibly helpful for my sanctification to be mindful of the truth that all of my suffering is suffering for the sake of Christ when I endure it by faith. It can be very easy for us to overlook the opportunity that we have to suffer for Christ in the daily struggles, the thorns and thistles of our work, and just the day-to-day struggles of living in a fallen world. But when we learn to have an attitude of embracing each and every moment of life's struggles as an opportunity to suffer for and with Christ, we will come to know Christ so much more intimately and so much faster than if we were to think and act as if suffering for Christ only happens if we're being fed to the lions or if we're being burned at the stake. That said, when Paul says that he has suffered the loss of all things, he's no longer talking about just a state of mind where he considers these things to be a loss. He's talking about the actual experience of suffering real loss. He lost all of his stature as a Pharisee, his place in the, in the community, his ambition. He endured famine, cold, torture, shipwreck, hunger, imprisonment, persecution, ridicule, and the constant threat of danger. Everything he endured was a loss of something, whether it was status, comfort, health, relationship, or safety. This is real suffering. 
See the glory of Christ in Paul's suffering. It's not that Paul is such a glorious super Christian. It's that he's glorifying God. There's a glory in seeing that Christ is so much more worthy of anything that we could ever go through or experience or lose. That to gain Christ is worth any price that we could ever pay. When Paul says that he suffered the loss of all things, counting them as rubbish in order to gain Christ, he doesn't mean in order to get Christ. He already has Christ. Christ already has him. He's talking about having more of Christ. He's talking about having an increase in the experience of knowing Christ. He's saying that there is an increasing joy that is found in the loss of everything outside of Christ. He's saying that our capacity to grow in our knowledge and our love of Christ is directly related to our making room for more of him by the loss of things that are taking up space in our lives, the loss of things that don't belong. Do you see the shock and the offense of this statement? Counting all these things as rubbish, as trash. What have you lost? What things in your life have you suffered for the sake of Christ? Do you see them as rubbish in comparison to the treasure of knowing Christ? Or have you allowed your loss to be the dominant perspective of your life? Have you been trying to console yourself with the hope of somehow regaining the things that you've lost? Have you given over to despair because of the finality of the loss? Oh, Christian, God is not saying that we must not grieve over loss. He's not saying that the good things that he has created are actually trash or that we should view everything in this life as trash. Just as Jesus was not saying in Luke 14 that we should actually hate our mother and father if we want to be his disciple. Again, it is about the comparison of these things to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. Counting these things as garbage does not mean that they should be viewed as bad or even unworthy of our tears. Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn. The comfort of Christ cannot be experienced apart from loss. It is not meant to be an easy or a flippant thing for us to lose everything for the sake of Christ. It will bring real mourning. But oh, the comfort that comes from those who are in Christ to those who are in Christ. We need to be very careful not to misconstrue the command for us to always rejoice as meaning that we have to always be expressing happiness outward. That there's no room for sorrow and grief. Jesus himself was very acquainted with these things. Isaiah 53, 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
Christ himself suffered the kind of loss that we will never comprehend when he bore our sin on the cross. The grief he suffered in the Garden of Gethsemane that led to the physical condition of him bleeding from the pores on his head. What kind of torture in the soul must it take for the blood vessels in your head to burst out in drops of sweat? And yet Jesus was without sin. His suffering and his mental grief was not a sinful lack of obedience to rejoice in the Lord. In fact, it was the joy of the Lord that strengthened him through his trial. Hebrews 12, 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. We should never treat grief itself as a sin that needs to be repented of. But we must also never forget that we do not grieve as those who have no hope. Romans 5.2 says we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Suffering loss and enduring hardship is something that we will all experience throughout our lives. But as Christians, as those who know Christ and who suffer for his sake, we are able to see past the pain of our temporary circumstances to the joy that awaits us when we will finally graduate this life and finally see our Savior face to face. Let's look now at verse 9. He just finished saying, In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul comes back now to the basis of the gospel. He has a desire to be found in Christ, to be identified with him, clothed in his righteousness. Not having a righteousness of his own that comes from the law, he says. What he's saying is even if I could achieve a righteousness on my own by perfectly obeying the law on my own, I would rather have the righteousness of Christ. The righteousness of God that is granted to us through faith in Christ is so much better than any righteousness that we could gain on our own through obedience to the law. This is a satisfying righteousness that is received in a state of resting in the work of Christ, which was done on our behalf, versus a righteousness that is gained through a hard-fought, bloody battle that leaves us worn out and weary because we can never rest. If it is our righteousness, then we have to maintain it. We can never let up. One misstep and it's over. The perfect record is adulterated. We've got to start all over again. Look at what he says next in verse 10. He gives the reason why he wants the righteousness of Christ. He says that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Again, this is clearly not just a cognitive knowledge of Christ. He wants to know the experience of living in Christ, to experience the power of his resurrection. Not so that he can wield that power, but to have that power be exercised in him. 
for Christ to be the power that holds him through any suffering that God would appoint for him. Do you see how contradictory this statement is to the idea that the grace of God is meant to free us from suffering? It is the grace of God that leads us to embrace our suffering. As we know Jesus and the power of his resurrection, the power that conquered our sins and gave us new life in Christ, we are also empowered, and it even says that we are blessed to experience suffering for his sake and for the sake of his church. And we become like him in his death as we suffer even unto death for the sake of the joy set before us. By faith we know that in Christ we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for us. We know that our purpose in this life is to glorify God and make his name great among the nations through our worship and enjoyment of him. When we willingly forsake everything that the world says is valuable, we show the supreme value of knowing Christ. His grace is manifested in our lives in a way that points to him, not to us. He's lifted up as supreme. That doesn't mean that we have to give up every good thing that we have. It means that we, when we do lose those things, which is going to happen, when we do suffer loss, it's evident that those things were not the foundation for our joy. He says in verse 11, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This last verse brings us to the climax of Paul's point. All of this is in the hope of resurrection from the dead. He's not talking about new spiritual life. He already has that. And he's not just talking about physical resurrection. He knows that all people will be physically resurrected, the just and the unjust. He's specifically talking about the resurrection that will finally unite our spirits to our new glorified bodies. And we will live in the presence of God and receive all of the rewards that he has promised to those that love him and keep his commandments. When Paul says, by any means possible, he doesn't mean I'm, going, I'm doing all of these things in order to try and secure his resurrection from the dead. He's saying that what has been promised, what is waiting for those who love God, all that comes to us in our resurrection from the dead is worth everything that we could possibly go through in this life. That whatever means that God would use to bring us to that final glorification is worth it. Any means possible. We know that God uses means to accomplish his purposes in the world. He uses the proclamation of the gospel message as the means the Holy Spirit works with to bring dead hearts to life. God certainly has the power to work miraculously and in supernatural ways that bypass the normal laws of nature. But in his perfect wisdom and infinite knowledge, he has chosen to operate in the world most commonly through the use of means. When we rightly see and embrace the truth of God's sovereign governance over our lives, over our days, we will experience the joy of embracing 
all of the circumstances of our lives as his means for our final salvation. I want to wrap up by bringing some practical application for us. I think that the idea of rejoicing in loss, rejoicing in suffering is a doctrine that most, if not all, Christians can easily affirm is true and is something that we should do. But oftentimes when the loss hits us, when the suffering comes, it's easy to lose sight of that truth. And I think it's almost more true with the small things again, with the little things. I think when we see the big things happen, that's where we really turn to God and we're looking for him. But it's in the daily struggles of life that we really can lose sight of that. And when that happens, we are blessed to be reminded and reoriented to the gospel through all of the means that God has ordained, whether that be through the spiritual discipline of reading his word in our daily devotions, through the hearing of the word in song or preached in corporate worship, through listening to online sermons from other faithful teachers, or through the practice of the one and others as we fellowship within the body of Christ. These are all blessed means that God has ordained, not only to maintain us in our faith, but to help us increase in the knowledge of Christ. Paul's emphasis on the experiential, intimate knowledge of Christ in this passage is not at the expense of a cognitive knowledge of Christ. We can't have an intimate knowledge of Christ without a cognitive knowledge. Knowing Christ intimately and experien experientially must start with the knowledge that he exists, the knowledge of who he is. At the same time, the more that we truly know Christ, the more that we will want to know him, the more that we will want to know and obey his word. So let us be diligent to not neglect these wonderful means that God has given us for our growth in the knowledge of Christ. Remember, we have his promise in Matthew 5, 6, that blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And I want to caution this once more. It reminds you that while the gospel is the good news and the power that gives us reason to rejoice in our suffering, we should never be afraid to share that good news. We must also be very careful not to think that anyone grieving loss automatically means that they're not rejoicing in the Lord or that they're not believing the gospel. Job's friends were excellent comforters to him in the first seven days where they sat with him silently. It wasn't that they opened their mouths and began to speak that was the problem. They said a lot of good, true things about God. Things that would have been comforting had they not been wielded in such a way as to blame Job for his suffering. They made the assumption that Job was being punished for some secret sin. If Job had committed public sin, his friends would have been right and loving to help him see it. Sin can absolutely be a reason for our own suffering. We know that sin brings 
the Lord's discipline. But they were not accusing Job of a known sin. They were demanding that Job confess to hidden sin that they suspected he was guilty of. One of the areas of pastoral ministry that we elders have been seeking to understand more fully and biblically is the area of depression and anxiety. What is sometimes even described as clinical depression. We still have a lot to learn, and I don't mean to communicate by any means that, that we've um, you know, mastered it or, or, or even come close to, to, to knowing all that there is to know. It's a very complicated subject. But one thing I will say is that I've been heartbroken to realize how common it is for people within the church universal and, and even within our own congregation, brothers and sisters in Christ who are suffering from bouts of depression to feel as if no one really cares to feel as if they're seen as a more deficient Christian than the rest of us for not being happy all the time there are many reasons that people can experience different types of depression including physical and or even mental ailments or imbalances and there are also many different means that God might use to help someone who suffers one of these conditions. None of those are in a replacement to the good news of the gospel. But they are means. In some cases, the use of medication might be one of the means that God uses to bring health and healing. There is no ailment or disease that will ever excuse sin. But we also must not make the mistake of thinking that it is a sin for someone to be inflicted with an ailment like depression, as Job's friends did. I pray that we as a church would be eager to not only rejoice with those who rejoice, but to weep with those who weep, and that we would be slow in thinking that a lack of external expressions of joy automatically equals an internal absence of rejoicing in the hope of Christ. Let us be wise in remembering that we are called to rejoice in the midst of our sorrow. That doesn't mean that our sorrow just goes away. It means that even though our sorrow is real, even though our sorrow might be persistent, we can truly rejoice in knowing that our sorrow only serves for us to experience what it means to know Christ and his suffering and for us to know the comfort of his love for us in ways that we could never know apart from having suffered. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the good news of Christ, for the good news of the gospel, for his finished work of redemption for all of us who by your spirit have put our trust in him. I pray that you would cause us to hunger and thirst for more of you, that we would always be satisfied in Christ, that he would eclipse everything else in this world that is constantly grabbing for our attention, that we would have a genuine love for Christ that is expressed in a genuine love for one another. Help us to speak the truth in love, to not be ashamed of the gospel. Help us to have a fear of you, a fear that would cause us to have no fear of anything else. 
pray for those listening who don't know you, who have not seen Christ for the all-satisfying treasure that he is. Pray that you would give them eyes to see, ears to hear today, that they would repent, that they would have the eyes to see the truth and to reject the lie that they would trust in Jesus and be saved. Let us leave here today, Lord, with your praises on our lips. Let us go out refreshed in the knowledge of your Son, in the knowledge of the gospel, rejoicing in whatever comes our way. We pray all of this in and through the perfect name of our Lord and Savior Jesus. Amen.